You are listening to audio recorded at the Village Church. For more information, go to villagechurchbaltimore.com. Today we are back in the book of John. Uh, we've been going through this book for several months now, and now it is uh, now we're in John 13. Just to give you a little bit of a roadmap, John 13 is. Uh, a little bit beyond the middle of the book, but from here onwards, things move pretty quickly. Uh, John 13 is the Last Supper. We're talking about that today. Uh, John 14 to 17 is this big speech that Jesus gives, the farewell discourse. And then 18, 19, 20, 21, that is his crucifixion and resurrection. Um, And so that's what's going on. Anyway, here is Kate. She'll be reading today's scripture passage from John 13, 1 through 38. Hi, Village Church. I'm Kate, and I'm going to be reading this morning from the Gospel of John, chapter 13, verses 1 through 38. Before the Passover festival, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart from this world to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Now when it was time for supper, the devil had already put into the heart of Judas, Simon Iscariot's son, to betray him. Jesus knew that the Father had given everything into his hands, that he had come from God, and that he was going back to God. So he got up from supper, laid aside his outer clothing, took a towel, and tied it around himself. Next, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet and to dry them with the towel tied around him. He came to Simon Peter, who asked him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I'm doing you don't realize now but afterward you will understand. You will never wash my feet, Peter said. Jesus replied, if I don't wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. One who is bathed, Jesus told him, doesn't need to wash anything except his feet, but he is completely clean. You are clean, but not all of you, for he knew who would betray him. This is why he said, not all of you are clean. When Jesus had washed their feet and put on his outer clothing, he reclined again and said to them, Do you know what I have done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are speaking rightly, since that is what I am. So if I, your teacher and Lord, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example, that you also should do just as I have done for you. Truly I tell you, a servant is not greater than his master. And a messenger is not greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. I'm not speaking about all of you. I know those I have chosen, but the scripture must be fulfilled. The one who eats my bread has raised his heel against me. I am telling you now before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am he. Truly I tell you, whoever receives anyone I send receives me, and the one who receives me receives him who sent me. When Jesus had said this, he was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me. The disciples started looking at one another, uncertain which one he was speaking about. One of his disciples, the one Jesus loved, was reclining close beside Jesus. Simon Peter motioned to him to find out who it was he was talking about. So he leaned back against Jesus and asked him, Lord, who is it? Jesus replied, He's the one I give the piece of bread to after I have dipped it. When he had dipped the bread, he gave it to Judas, Simon Iscariot's son. After Judas ate the piece of bread, Satan entered him. So Jesus told him, 
what you're doing, do quickly. None of those reclining at the table knew why he had said this to him. Since Judas kept the money bag, some thought that Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the festival, or that he should give something to the poor. After receiving the piece of bread, he immediately left, and it was night. When he had left, Jesus said, now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself, and will glorify him at once. Little children, I am with you a little while longer. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so now I tell you, where I am going, you cannot come. I give you a new command, love one another, just as I have loved you, and you are also to love one another. By this, everyone know, will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. Lord, Simon Peter said to him, where are you going? Jesus answered, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow later. Lord, Peter asked, why can't I follow you? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus replied, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, I tell you, a rooster will not crow until you have denied me three times. So in today's passage, it's the night before Jesus is going to be killed. Um, and Jesus and his disciples, they're having this meal together. We call it the Last Supper. There's famous paintings on this. And uh, during this meal, there is this famous scene in which Jesus washes his disciples' feet. And then shortly afterwards, there's this famous scene in which there's this conversation about who will betray Jesus. And all of that happens here. There's a lot of golden nuggets in this chapter. Um, but today... Uh, because we won't have time to cover everything in the chapter today, I want to spend the bulk of my time talking about two characters in this story. Uh, the characters of Judas Iscariot and Simon Peter. Judas Iscariot and Simon Peter. The book of John is obviously about Jesus. Jesus is the main character, and so that's why we spend most of our time talking about him. But today, uh, uh, I want to talk about Judas and Peter because they feature pretty prominently in this chapter, and I think we can learn a lot from their story. So, uh, Jude, uh, Judas and Peter have a lot of similarities. They're among the 12 disciples that Jesus handpicked. Uh, they both uh, hung out with Jesus for about three years, witnessing him uh, teach all these amazing things and do these amazing miracles. Um, they also participated in the betrayal of Jesus, uh, which we'll soon find out the, the, the seeds of this betrayal are sort of planted right here in this chapter. But Judas would eventually betray Jesus, for 30 pieces of silver in the middle of the night. And, uh, and Peter would deny even knowing Jesus three, time out of, three times out of fear of his life. So, uh, those, so those are the similarities. But there are some major differences as well, which we'll be pointing out. Um, so let's just do them one at a time. Let's talk about Judas for a little bit, and then we'll talk about Peter. So here's Judas. Now, we don't know a whole, uh, uh, we don't know a whole lot about Judas. Uh, what we do know is um, that he was a man driven by greed. And how do we know that? We saw that in John chapter 12. We talked about this a few weeks ago. In John chapter 12, that was a scene in which Mary poured expensive perfume on Jesus' feet. And uh, Judas chimes in. Check out what happens in 12, 4 through 6. Then one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was about to betray him, said, Why wasn't this perfume sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor. He didn't say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. He was in charge of the money bag and would steal part of what was put in it. So we see here that Jesus uh, and, the, and the disciples had entrusted Judas to be their treasurer, right? And this shows that he wasn't just this tag-along kid disciple. You know what I mean by that? Like a tag-along kid where 
you know, you have the in crowd, the click, everyone's hanging out and Judas is like this random guy just tagging along for the ride, but no one really pays him any mind. He's like this weird kid doing his own thing. That's not the case. Judas seemed to be a central part of this group, of this posse, right? Um, he was in charge of the money. That's not, that's, that's a very important role. And as Pastor Dan mentioned two weeks ago, on the surface, what Judas said might seem innocent and even wise and compassionate. However, uh, the text makes it clear. Uh, verse 6 clarifies his intentions. He was a thief and he would occasionally steal from the group. Now, just imagine this. Imagine that you've spent three years of your life hanging out with Jesus, um, the Son of God, and you saw him at the peak of his ministry. You saw him feed the 5,000. You saw him uh, uh, heal blind men, and you saw him calm the storms, and you saw him raise Lazarus from the dead. You saw him do all these things. You saw him teach about prayer and obedience and forgiveness, and still you have it in your heart to steal from him. Well, that's what Judas did. You know, uh, Peter, at one point, he said to Jesus, Lord, to whom, uh, to, to whom will we go? You have the words of eternal life because Peter recognized that there's nothing else in the world that he wanted but Jesus. But Judas was the opposite. Judas wasn't like, Judas wasn't like this. To him, Jesus wasn't enough. Um, he still wanted money, right? And a word to describe this is greed. I think Judas's character can be defined by greed. He wanted what he didn't have. Um, so many people would have dreamed of being one of Jesus's hand-picked disciples. But for Judas, that wasn't enough. He wanted something else. He wanted money. Now keep that in mind uh, as we go back to John 13. We're going to highlight a few verses throughout this passage that talk about Judas. Um, let's start from verse 2. Now when it's time for supper, the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas, Simon Iscariot's son, to betray him. So this is pretty interesting, right? It says that the devil had put it into Judas's heart to betray Jesus. Now, you might read that and you go, oh man, Judas, he's just such a poor soul. He was just taking advantage of the devil. Um, and later in this chapter, we even say that uh, Satan entered into Judas. And so sometimes when we think about this in, in our modern day context, you know, what we think of as like demon possession and that sort of exorcism. And we're like, oh man, Judas, he was just this innocent guy and Satan just took advantage of him. Um, but I want to clarify this for a second. Here's a theology question I think is worth exploring, okay? Did Judas willingly volunteer to betray Jesus out of his own will, or was he simply under the influence of the devil when he betrayed Jesus? Well, um, I think it's kind of similar to this question. If you are driving under the influence of alcohol and you get into an accident, was it your fault or the alcohol's fault? And I would say the answer is both. Both you... Your will, your free will, and the alcohol played a role in that incident. And I would say the same thing happened to Judas. I think what happened was that Judas, as we saw in chapter 12, he already had a habit of exposing himself to certain sins. Uh, we don't know what else he did. We don't know a whole lot about his character. But at the very least, we knew he would regularly steal from Jesus and his disciples. So we already saw a propensity for greed, a propensity for covetousness, right? We knew that he wanted what he didn't have. And so I think what happened was the devil just noticed that Judas had these des desires already. And he just said, oh, you have these propensities? You have this, these desires? Here, I'll give you what you want. He planted it, he planted in Judas's mind 
a way to fulfill those desires. He said, if you betray Jesus, you will have 30 pieces of silver. Which, by the way, is not a whole lot of money. It's, it's a decent amount. It's probably like a, a month or two's uh, worth of pay back in those days for an average person, right? So that's, but I think that's how sin and the devil often interact in our lives too. Uh, when we sin, we can't just play the devil and say, oh, he was just, he put me under a spell or something like that. We need to own our own part because oftentimes what happens is we have certain sins in our lives. We've had a habit of greed or we've had a habit of lust or we've had a habit of bitterness and so on. And what the devil does is he notices our sinful habits and he says, oh, this is what you want here. I'll give you what you want. And then the consequences turn out to be more drastic than we predicted. Um, so that's what happened. Uh, let's skip down to verse 18. Here's Jesus talking to his disciples. And this is what he says. I'm not speaking about all of you. I know those I have chosen, but the scripture must be fulfilled. The one who eats my bread has raised his heel against me. Jesus says, the one who eats my bread has raised his heel against me. And he's referring to a scripture passage, which is Psalm 41, 19. And I think is enlightening. So I'll read that as well. Even my friend in whom I trusted, one who ate my bread has raised his heel against me. And so Jesus is quoting um, the psalmist and, and, and tying his feelings with the psalmist's feelings. Um, but I think it's, a, it's just a sad reality that he brings this up because one of the saddest parts about this night was that it wasn't just nobody who betrayed Jesus. It was a close friend who betrayed Jesus. This is a friend Jesus trusted, a friend who ate his bread. He would literally hand a piece of bread to him as a sign that he was going to be the traitor. He was the one who betrayed Jesus. You know, it's one thing when um, people you don't know that well betray you, who try to do harm against you, but it cuts you super deep when it's one of your closest friends who does that to you. You know, it's one thing for um, Emperor Palpatine in Star Wars to be evil. He's just this, you know, senator and you know, this politician. You sort of expect politicians to be evil, but it's another thing when Anakin Skywalker... You know, the chosen one, the, uh, the uh, beloved apprentice of Obi-Wan Kenobi, it was him who turned to the dark side of the force. You know, that cuts deep, right? That's why Obi-Wan, you remember that scene? He, he saw the hologram, the security footage of, you know, Anakin Skywalker fighting these people at the Jedi Temple. And he was like, it can't be, it can't be. Um, it makes you wonder, why would Judas do such a thing? Why would Judas, this close friend of Jesus, the treasurer who accompanied Jesus for three years, you would think that if he was following Jesus for three years, he would have had a pretty good relationship. He would have, there was a reason why he did that. He would have been motivated. Why would you, Judas do all of these things? Um, well, we do know from John chapter 12 that he was a man driven by greed. Um, a few weeks ago, uh, there were some historic movements on the stock market you know, with companies like GameStop and AMC going on this meteoric rise driven by individuals who just wanted to uh, um, make hedge funds lose billions of dollars and a few opportunists, uh, opportunists along the way. Uh, but one of the things that happened was that there were some people who had never invested before in their life. They, don't, they knew nothing about investing and they just got caught up in this buzz. And some of them, I'll just say, they hopped on too late. Um, the way these things work is what goes up must come down. Uh, sorry to break it to you. But anyways, that's what happened. And so the stock, the stock price uh, it peaked and then shortly afterward, it plummeted. And so if you hopped on too late or maybe you hopped on even a little early and it, it went a good amount, it went up a good amount and then 
now you're looking at and it's going down several days in a row, what would you do? Well, some folks, you know, they, they held on for a few days and they're like, this is part of the plan. Just trust the process. It'll go back up soon. Uh, but after a few more days, some of those folks, they decide, you know what? I'm going to jump ship. Um, they're like, maybe they're like so upset for losing all their money and um, they just, they feel stupid or cheated. And they're like, you know what? Forget this cause. I'm out. I need to find an exit strategy. I'll just sell my stock and cut my losses. And I imagine that Judas might have, I'm just theorizing, but I'm imagining that Judas might have felt a little bit like this too. Um, Because when you trace Jesus's ministry, you also see this up and down curve, right? There were three years uh, of Jesus' ministry and there seemed to be this buzz, this excitement, this meteoric rise. And it seemed like this was a great cause. It seemed like if you stuck with Jesus, you would have a great place in Jesus's kingdom one day. But then gradually there was a shift. And all of a sudden you hear rumors, people are trying to kill Jesus now. Um, People were trying to uh, trap him in some sort of theological argument so that they could arrest him for blasphemy. And there starts to be this idea, oh, what if I stick with him too long? What if I miss the peak and now I'm going to be arrested and killed alongside Jesus too? Uh, maybe Judas thought that Jesus had missed his opportunity. He should have been more wealthy by now or more powerful by now. He should have made more political moves by now. But now he's realizing, if I stick this out, I might be on the wrong side of history. I might die with Jesus too. And Jesus himself, he's been talking about dying all the time too. And that's not the direction I want to take. This isn't what I signed up for, right? So maybe Judas is saying, this is a lost cause. I need to get out. I'm going to try to cut my losses. I might as well... uh, make some money doing it. And so whatever the case, Judas decided that 30 pieces of silver was worth more than a lifetime relationship with the Son of God. So that's Judas. Now let's turn to Peter, right? Um, You might think Peter is totally different. Uh, There are some similarities, some differences, but we'll talk about Peter. So Peter has two different exchanges with Jesus in this chapter, John chapter 13. And the first exchange has to do with foot washing. So let's Read from verse 6. He, Jesus, came to Simon Peter who asked him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what, am I, what I'm doing you don't realize now, but afterward you will understand. You will never wash my feet, Peter said. So let's pause here. So, um, you know, some people, they feel uncomfortable when other people serve them. You know, as, uh, as an Asian, sometimes, you know, this is pretty common in Asian culture, but not, it's not limited to just Asians. Um, but... Maybe it's like someone buys you a birthday present and you don't know them that well. Or maybe someone buys you a meal and um, someone just does you, even something like opening the door for you or something like that. You just feel kind of, oh, I don't like, I don't like inconveniencing people. You know, so maybe some of you are like that. We prefer prefer to be uh, independent and not rely on the services of other people. And maybe some of that dynamic is going on here with Peter. Uh, But but, uh, I think there's something else going here on another level, which is, uh, in this day and age, hierarchy was a huge deal. And uh, Peter, um, he recognized that Jesus was his Lord and master. And people who are considered higher than you, they don't do things for you. That's just what, that was atypical at the time. And especially back then, people wore sandals most of the time and uh, roads weren't paved. And so uh, 
foot wa- feet washing, that was not like a, a very sanitary thing. And so usually it was reserved for servants. It was considered a lowly task reserved for servants. But here was Jesus, Peter's master, the son of God, washing his feet. And Peter found this disturbing. And so he asked Jesus to stop. But then this exchange makes an interesting turn. Jesus replied, continuing in verse 8, If I don't wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. He goes to the other extreme, right? One who has bathed, Jesus told him, doesn't need to wash anything except his feet, but he is completely clean. You are clean, but not all of you. So Jesus says, if you want to be with me, you need to allow me to wash your feet. And then all of a sudden, Peter is like, okay, yeah, do that. Uh, that's, that's what I want to do. But, and actually, wash all of me. And then Jesus is saying, no, I don't need to do that. You just need a foot wash. So what's going on here? Well, uh, back in these days, so there's sort of the, the literal interpretation, and then there's the spiritual interpretation. Okay, so the literal interpretation is back in these days, before you go out uh, on a social gathering, if it's a relatively nice social gathering, you would typically bathe your whole body, just like today. You take a shower before you go out, right? Um, and then when you would arrive in your, in your uh, nice dinner party or whatever, typically a servant would come and wash your feet because you just trekked, uh, you just trekked on this dirt road for a mile or so, and now, you know, you need a foot washing, okay? So that's what typically would happen. You don't, you don't take a shower at your dinner party. You just have a foot washing, and that's it. So Jesus is just saying that. That's a literal interpretation. You don't need a full bath. You just, just, you just need a foot washing. Only your feet are dirty, right? But I think there's also a spiritual uh, metaphor that Jesus is talking about, and that has to do with justification and sanctification. Now, these are some big words, all right? So in Christian theology, uh, there's justification and sanctification. These are words we often use. Justification is what happens when we become followers of Jesus. Uh, you become justified by Jesus's, by trusting in Jesus' death and resurrection, uh, meaning that now you are justified, you are right with God. And when you decide to trust in Jesus, a bunch of things simultaneously happen. Uh, you become saved, you become born again, you become a new creation, you become righteous. All these things happen uh, in an instant. The, the moment you decide to trust in God, the moment you are justified and, uh, and the Spirit starts dwelling in you as well. Um, justification happens one time and that's it. That's it. Even if you sin again, you don't need to be justified again. You just, you're justified. Uh, past, present, future. Then there is sanctification. Okay, sanctification is what continually happens after we become followers of Jesus. And it's this ongoing process of repentance and faith and of knowing and loving Jesus more each and every day. Um, and this is not a one-time thing. This is an ongoing thing. We keep being sanctified day after day um, until the day we're with God for eternity. Um, in the church, justification is represented, symbolized by baptism. Near the beginning of your journey, you're baptized and you're only baptized one time. Um, and that's it. And that's your way of declaring, I've decided to trust in Jesus and I've been forgiven and cleaned. And uh, even if you sin again, you don't get rebaptized. It's just a one-time thing that you do. And sanctification in the church is represented or symbolized by uh, communion or the Lord's Supper. Throughout your spiritual journey, you don't just do communion one time. You do it multiple times. You do it repeatedly throughout. Um, right now, because of the pandemic, we haven't been doing it, but just... Hold your horses. Uh, it's going to come soon, okay? Anyways, uh, unlike baptism, communion, uh, communion doesn't happen just one time. You do it repeatedly. 
um, until that final feast with God for eternity. So here's a quick little diagram, all right? Uh, On the day you start following Jesus, you experience justification. That's this uh, big vertical arrow. Now when God sees you, he sees you as perfect and beautiful uh, because you've inherited Jesus' nature. And so from this point onward, your position in Christ will be 100% righteous. Also on that day, you begin the process of sanctification, and that's this long, winding, wiggly arrow representing your condition as you seek to be more like Jesus. Uh, uh, you will have ups and downs, whether that is good or bad days or good or bad seasons. And at the end of your life, when you're with God for eternity, you'll experience this other process, this other arrow called glorification, in which your condition and posi- position in Christ align once more. Uh, but anyways, that's sort of a diagram of justification and sanctification. And I think that's what Jesus is getting at. He doesn't say it so explicitly in the text, but when you read what he's talking about with this bathing and washing, I think that's the explanation that makes the most sense. He says that when you've bathed, it's like you've been justified. You've been clean. You're good to go. You don't need to bathe again. You've done your bathing. That's it. That's all you need. But he says, you do still need to wash your feet because as you walk around outside in the dirt, your feet will be dirty and tainted. And that's, and so you do need to wash your feet and that's called being sanctified. As we walk this Christian life, we will continue to taint ourselves and therefore we need to regularly come to Jesus to be washed, not in the sense that we will be saved again or uh, not, we're not, trying to be baptized again. We're not trying to be forgiven of our sins uh, completely once justified again. We are being sanctified every single day. Um, Now, some people have this mentality of, I was baptized once, so uh, I'm saved, so I'm good to go, and I don't need any more washing. Um, So they think they are justified and they no longer need any, they're not involved in the process of being sanctified, right? Right? But hear what Jesus says. This is really key. Hear what Jesus says about foot washing. If I don't wash you, you have no part with me. If I don't wash you, you have no part with me. And notice, he's not talking about the bathing. He's not talking about uh, cleansing you of your sins, uh, past, present, future, in the justified sense. He's not talking about justification. He's talking about this regular washing. He's talking about sanctification. In other words, it's not enough for the Christian just to get saved A central part of what it means to be a Christian is to regularly come to Jesus to exercise these habits of repentance and faith, not just one time, but all the time. We need to be regularly coming to Jesus, confessing our sins, and experiencing forgiveness. That's what it means to be a Christian. That's what it means to be a disciple. And that is not optional. But there are many people today who are like Peter and saying, you shall never wash my feet. They uh, feel like they don't need sanctification. They're good to go. They're good as they are. They feel like their sins are too insignificant and they are too proud to allow Jesus to wash their feet. And on the other extreme, there are other people today who are like Peter on the other extreme. They're saying, Lord, not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. And they feel, in other words, that their justification wasn't good enough and they need to keep being bathed. They feel that their sin is too great. They need to be saved over and over, that somehow their sin uh, is able to withstand God's grace. And I think we need to be in a healthy middle. We need to have an accurate understanding of our sin and an accurate understanding of forgiveness. Our sin is serious enough 
that we need Jesus to come to us regularly and to wash us regularly. We can't just have this mentality of, oh, I, I prayed my prayer and I'm good to go. We need to understand that our sin before a holy God is serious enough that we need to regularly confess our sins to him, regularly be washed. But our sin is never so great that it cancels out the original work of the cross. Our sin is never so great that the work that Jesus did in you uh, before is now canceled out. We need to repent and be saved again. We need to be in the healthy middle, right? So let's get back to the text. Let's skip down to uh, the end of the chapter where we read about Peter's second exchange with Jesus. This is in verse 36. Lord, Simon Peter said to him, where are you going? Jesus answered, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow later. Talking about death, right? Because Peter will one day follow him and die with him. Lord, Peter asked, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus replied, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, I tell you, a rooster will not crow until you have denied me three times. Within 12 hours of this conversation, Peter will have denied Jesus three times. And shortly afterwards, Jesus will be dead on the cross. Peter was so confident that he would die for Jesus. However, he underestimated his fear. He underestimated his cowardice. He underestimated his sin. You see, Judas's issue, Judas's main issue was greed, but Peter's main issue was pride. Greed is thinking you don't have enough, but pride is thinking that you have it all. On the one hand, there was Judas, the victim of greed. Judas was so skeptical of Jesus, so critical of Jesus, that he was willing to betray him for 30 pieces of silver. And on the other hand, you have Peter, the victim of pride. Peter was so confident in his standing before Jesus, so confident in his own character, his own moral ability to do the right thing, that he was so blind to the fact that just within moments, he would betray Jesus three times. These two people, I think, represent two of the primary ways we in the church often sin. Uh, Some of us, we behave more like Jesus. We struggle with greed. We don't see much value in following Jesus. And if there's something else, this other opportunity, this other sinful opportunity that presents its way, we're able to drop following Jesus at the drop of a hat. We would easily trade Jesus in for earthly comforts. Others of us behave more like Peter and We're puffed up with pride. We talk a good game. Uh, We portray ourselves really well. We tell people that uh, we give off the vibe that we're awesome, that we're great moral people. But when the moment comes, the way we live doesn't match up with what we say. We embarrassingly fall short just like everybody else. In short, we are addicted to pride. But thankfully, there's a third character in this story, and that is Jesus In this story, Jesus didn't exemplify greed or pride, but humility. Jesus knew he was the son of God, right? This chapter talked about how he was from the father and he was going to go back to the father. Jesus knew he was going to be nailed to a cross in about 12 hours. Jesus knew that his betrayer, Judas Iscariot, was right there in the room, yet he got down on his knees to wash his disciples' feet. Can you imagine that? And no one in the room remotely knew what Jesus was going through, what he was about to go through 
all they were doing was having a, I mean, I don't know if you've ever experienced this before where you're in some sort of social gathering and it seems like everyone is having the time of their life, everyone's having fun, but you, you're not. Because you know something else, you know something that nobody else knows. There's something dreadful or something miserable either in your own life or something on the news that you're just struggling with and it's just tearing you up inside and everyone seems to have a jolly good time and you're just by yourself and you're like, man, I wish these people could know. That was Jesus. That's how Jesus was feeling. This chapter talks about how he was troubled in the spirit. Yet even so, he still took on the form of a servant as Philippians 2 says, he took on the form of a servant and washed his disciples' feet. And yes, even the feet of Judas Iscariot. And after he did that, check out what he says, starting from verse 12. When Jesus had washed their feet and put on his outer clothing, he reclined again and said to them, do you know what I have done for you? You call me teacher and Lord and you're speaking rightly since that is what I am. So if I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done for you. So Jesus, he's saying, essentially, don't follow the path of greed. Don't follow the path of pride. Choose the path of humility and wash one another's feet. You see, humility is the answer to both pride, to both greed and pride. True humility brings contentment. So you don't have to be greedy anymore. It's to say, I have Jesus and not have enough. There is nothing the world can offer me that can satisfy, but Jesus is all I need. I no longer have to be driven by this desire for more and more and more. I can come to Jesus and I can have way more than I need. And true humility brings repentance, which is the solution, the opposite of pride, right? It is to say, I don't need to have a bloated view of myself. I don't need to claim that I can do things that I won't be able to follow up with. I can just be honest with my shortcomings, with my inability to keep myself clean, and I can come to Jesus and allow him to wash me. For those of you who aren't Christians, who are wondering about this whole Jesus business, whether or not following Jesus is worth it, whether or not you are qualified even to follow Jesus, I want to say something to you. The prerequisite to being a follower of Jesus is not to be a loving person, is not to be a courageous person, is not to be a truthful person. It is to be a dirty person and humble enough to say that you are dirty and that you need washing. If any of you are in this room, if you've always felt like you were never qualified, that you were never good enough to come to Jesus, I want to just break down that lie and say, there is no one who is good enough to come to Jesus. That's the whole point. You, there are only, you have to be bad enough to follow Jesus because only then can you realize that you need Jesus. And for those of you who are Christians, I want to extend Jesus' challenge to his disciples to you as well. He says, if I your Lord and teacher have washed your feet. You also ought to wash one another's feet. That's a radical kingdom ethic. And I think we need more of this sort of living today in our church. You know, this isn't just niceness. This isn't just, you know, being polite. This is a radical hospitality, a radical compassion, a radical forgiveness, a radical love. This is the sort of calling that Jesus is calling us to. 
Um, towards the end of the chapter, we didn't mention these verses yet, but I'll really quickly read 34 and 35. Jesus says, I give you a new command. Love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Now, love one another, that in itself, that's not a new command. Okay, that was, You can see that in Leviticus. and That's not a new command. What is a new command is, just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. Meaning, Jesus has loved us in this extraordinary way by washing his disciples' feet, laying down his life, dying for us, once enemies, now friends. That is the kind of love that we are to love one another with. The example, the standard of love is a new standard. I love the way Charles Spurgeon puts it, we are to love our neighbor as ourselves, but we are to love our fellow Christians as Christ loved us. And that is far more than we love ourselves. We, most of us, I would imagine, love ourselves quite a bit. That's why we eat nice food and that's why we sleep in and that's why we watch movies we enjoy. We do all these things for ourselves because we love ourselves. And Charles Spurgeon is saying that Christ loves us even more than we love ourselves. And that love is the kind of love we extend to those around us. You know, if you want to take a practical step on how to love one another, um, if you're not on a serving team, you can join a serving team. Uh, you can sign up, uh, whether it's through shooting videos or uh, mentoring youth or uh, running slides. We could use your help. You don't have to come into our church building to do some of these things. You can do some of these things at home. There's a lot of different opportunities. Um, if you're looking to help, just let us know. You can sign up at villagehamden.com slash serve. Uh, but there are a lot of different ways you can serve besides official ways, right? Maybe it's just writing someone a note of encouragement. Uh, maybe it's offering to drop off a meal for someone. Um, maybe it's uh, write, uh, shooting someone a text message, just asking them um, that, uh, how you can pre- be praying for them. Whatever it is, I encourage you to spend some time today and think about how God is calling you to serve others who just need a little more love in your life. Who has God placed in your life who God is calling you to love and serve this week. May we be a church that is characterized not by the greed of Judas, not by the pride of Peter, but by the humility and love of Jesus. For it is by our love for one another that the whole world will know that we are Jesus' disciples. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for Jesus. Um, for his example and for his saving work in our lives. We thank you that unlike Judas, who traded you in for some silver, um, you decided to trade in your life. And we thank you that unlike Peter, who wasn't able to lay down his life for you, you were able to lay down your life and you did it for us all. May we have that heart as well. May we have this heart to trade in all of our earthly belongings just to know you more, to surrender this desire, this greed that we have for more and more and more and recognize in you we have enough. And may we have this heart of humility, unlike Peter who was so proud that he wouldn't allow himself to be washed. May we be 
open and honest and authentic about our shortcomings and say, Jesus, I need help. Not just one time, not just that one time a long time ago when I turned to you and got saved, but every day, even today. I need you every day. Spirit, we need you every day. Not just to dwell in us, but to fill us up every day, to transform us every day, to mold us every day, to speak to us every day, to forgive us every day. May that be the cry of our hearts. Um, We thank you so much for your presence in our lives. Not just that one time you saved us, but every single day. We thank you and pray this in Jesus' name.